Our Father, this morning we are so thankful that we can come together, that we have an opportunity to break open your word. It is the bread of life to us. It is living water, and it feeds us and satisfies us beyond anything we could ever comprehend. And you have more packed in here than what we could ever get through in a lifetime, and we know that. And oftentimes, even what I say feels like it's just muddying the water. So I'd ask today, Father, that your spirit would make all things clear, that we'd have a clear understanding of who you are, who Jesus is, your your work of your spirit in our lives, that our hearts would be receptive to what you have for us today, God, and that we would just take these moments now that we spend together that we would relish the time to be in the Word because we know that it is life to us. It is as though it was air. And help us to breathe it in and to meditate upon it and to apply it to our lives. And so we commit our time to you in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Seventeen years ago, I was not living in the United States. I'd made a 20-year hiatus into Canada and um, went through school, got married, and then... um, became a pastor, was a youth pastor, and then I went to another little town called Oliver, British Columbia. And uh, it was a great place, and it was a great time in my life because I got to do a lot of things as a pastor. I mean, there were a lot of things laid out for me before me to do. But one of the greatest joys I had, and it was a very unique time in my life, was I had an accountability partner. His name was Kevin Nickel. And Kevin lived about um, 50 minutes north of me, and between us was a city called Penticton. And so once a week, we would make our way to Penticton, meet at Denny's at 6 o'clock in the morning. We were accountability partners. And so in accountability, what we did is we talked a lot about being husbands and what that looked like and areas where we needed to grow and being better husbands. We talked about what it meant to be fathers to our children and to be involved in their lives and to help them grow to be like Christ. We also talked a lot about our churches and the things that we were trying to do to help our church uh, step into the community and bring those who didn't know Jesus to a place where they could at least hear the gospel of Jesus. Some of the other things that we did in our time together is we would laugh at our church people. I know you guys go home and you laugh at the pastor, but we had times where we'd get together because... There are a lot of things that people, questions that people ask that is just kind of like, really? It's one of those moments where you go, wow. Or they say some things that you just go like, huh, I didn't know. And some of those things would just make us laugh. For instance, one Sunday, Kevin, um, he met in a school, by the way. And so uh, they had to do all the setup and everything and set up chairs and everything. And so... Uh, One Sunday, Kevin says he was in there mingling around with the worship team and talking to different people and getting to know. And he said this guy came walking in who had never been in church before, but he was one of those really loud, boisterous kind of guys that would, when he walks into the room, he makes a grand entrance. Even if he knows nobody, he's going to make sure everybody in the room knew that he was there. And he was yelling across the room to people that he, he, he knew in town and was being kind of loud. And then all of a sudden, in a real loud voice, he goes, who's the big dog around here? Which was kind of funny to me because my friend Kevin had ballooned to a 340-pound man. And Kevin goes, I'm the big dog. And so the guy came up to him and says, hey, listen, you know, uh, this is my first time at church. I'm really not a church guy. 
Um, but, you know, I, I, I just want to, I have one question for you that I want to know. Kevin goes, what's your question? He goes, do you guys do that, that uh, blood thing here? And Kevin's going, the blood thing? He goes, yeah, you know the blood thing. Kevin goes, uh, you got to help me out a little bit more. He goes, well, you know, it's, it's that blood thing and the bread thing. And Kevin goes, oh, you're talking about communion. He goes, yeah, yeah, that's it. He goes, you guys do that here? Kevin goes, yeah, we, we do communion. He goes, okay, so what do I have to do to get in on some of that action? Kevin's going like, woo. Let me describe the guy. I met him. He wears slacks all the time. He has penny, penny loafers on. Um, and he dresses really kind of flamboyant. Um, he's one of those guys that um, looks like a bear rug when he takes his shirt off. Uh, and so he would walk in with his shirt unbuttoned down to about here with all of his manlyhood poking out of the top of the shirt. He wore about six gold chains, and he had seven gold ringer, rings on his fingers with diamonds in them. He put more hair product in his hair than should be legal. It was slicked back. He had big sideburns and a goatee. You got the picture? All right. You can imagine what his wife looks like. She was just like him. But he wanted to know, how does a guy like me, hey, 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 get in on some of this action on the blood thing? So Kevin explained to him that there's this process of giving your life to Christ, becoming a disciple of Jesus. Then we gather around the communion table and we celebrate what Christ has done for us. And he's going, oh, I'm really interested in learning more about that. So Kevin thought that was great. But here's kind of the uh, point that I want to draw out is that he was a total outsider of the church. We wouldn't call him an insider because he'd never been before. I don't know why he showed up, what made him come. But he got a point that a lot of church people don't get. It's all about the blood. It is the blood thing. It really is. And he hit the nail on the head. And he didn't even know it. Uh, I don't think, I, as far as I know, I don't know if he ever came to Christ. Uh, he didn't stay in the church for a very long time. But the point is that, <coughs> excuse me, the blood thing is what we read about through the entire Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about the blood thing. So I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, or your little app thing, to Hebrews chapter 9. And you'll remember that we handled the first half of Hebrews last week, and so we're going to start with verse 15 this week. And so I'm going to read um, to you, and if you have a app and you're wondering what translation I'm reading out of, it's the ESV and uh, English Standard Version. And so I'm going to start with verse 15, and I'm going to read um, just a little bit, and then we'll talk about it. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I'm going to stop right there. Um, the therefore, it, it, we always kind of have to look at the therefore, because it's, it's there for a reason. What it's there to do is to remind us of what he just said prior to that. And the thing that he talked about prior to that is, is that he was telling us that the old system, the old covenant, was inadequate in being able to accomplish cleansing our conscience. It dealt only with the exterior, the external 
uh, sins that somebody that was uh, in Judaism would commit, such as food, drink, food and drink issues, clothing issues. You didn't know that, maybe, but they had very strict rules about the kind of clothing and the, the, the different materials they could blend together. They would talk about touch things, like what happens. There's, there's a process you have to go through if you touch a, a dead carcass, someone who's dead or a dead animal, purification things. And so he was telling us in that section that what happened with the blood in the Old Testament only covered exterior things. It never could deal with the heart issue. It could never deal with a guilty conscience. And, and then he says, prior to that, he said, but Jesus came, and through his blood, he's been able to do what the old system couldn't do. He has dealt with our guilty conscience. He has removed our sin from us. He has absorbed our guilt so we can live a life guilt-free by having faith in Christ. That's what the therefore is, because he's trying to set up what's going to happen next. And so when you take a look at what he says after that, he says that he, and that's referring to Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant. Now let me just help you understand mediator, because we have an idea of maybe if you've gone through court and you've had to sit down in mediation with somebody, that, that you probably really didn't like that process if you lost. <laughs> but... You know, the, the mediator, the overall meaning is that it's bringing two parties who are at odd to reconciliation. It's to reconcile two opposing people. That's the whole goal of it. But the biblical concept of mediation is to bring sinful men to reconciliation with a holy and righteous God. That's the Old Testament meaning. And that... Um, mediation was found in two offices that are laid out for us in the Old Testament, the prophet and the priest. The prophet was the mediator uh, between God and man. The prophet would speak for God to men. He would be mediating between God. He would hear what God has to say. Then he would say to the men, this is what God has to say to you. And in his whole thing, he would do that by revelation and instruction and through warning. That was the role of the prophet. The priest, on the other hand, played the other role. He stood in the gap and mediated between man and God. He spoke from man to God. And the way that he would mediate is by um, intercession and sacrifice. And so the two of them were very compatible and they worked well together. And so that's what they would do, but they couldn't do it as well as God wanted it done. They were lacking because they were sinful men to begin with, and there were other things going on in the issues. And so the, these offices that complemented each other between God and man, but here in Hebrews, Jesus is shown to be the mediator between a new or better covenant. The old covenant was inadequate. And so Jesus came and says, I'm going to fulfill the role of both priest and prophet, and I'm going to mediate this new covenant between men and a holy God. And he does that for us. First Timothy 2, 3 through 6 says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all people. This is now 
been witnessed at the proper time, or as it says in another translation, that the message God gave to the world was just at the right time. God's timing is always perfect. We can't. You might be thinking that God's slow to act or God's slow to respond to your needs or your prayers or what's going on in your life. That's because we're very impatient people. We go through the drive-thru at McDonald's and um, we're waiting at the little box to make our order and if uh, somebody doesn't come and say something to us in the first three seconds, we want to honk, honk our home horn and ask if anybody's in there. Anybody home? Because we're very impatient people. But God's timing is always perfect, and it just doesn't look the way we want to. But Jesus, in this passage here in Hebrews, is tell, it's telling us that he's the perfect priest and the perfect prophet that now stands in the gap between our holy God and us. So let's continue uh, looking at verse 15. Because it says after that, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. I'm going to stop right there. Because when we talk about people who are called, that word called creates a lot of angst in people's hearts. It, it can produce some kind of um, wondering and maybe even fear. And it generates conversation. And a lot of times those conversations aren't as healthy as they should be because there is a, uh, a doctrine that says that there are those who are called, predestined by God, to be called sons of God. In other words, what they're saying is there's a select group of people on whom God has shown His favor and brought them into eternal life. And then there are others who are not called. Now, that can really be disconcerting to us because we're thinking, all right, then then God really only has a few people that are really going to get to heaven and those are only the the ones that have favor with God, they're what we would call the holy lucky ones. You know, they won the lottery ticket or whatever of eternity. But remember the verse I just read in, in Timothy? It says real clear right here. It says that um, it's God who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. God wants all people to be saved. So what does it mean to be called? Well, it's those people, the people that are called are the ones that have actually answered the phone to God. Okay? Ring, 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 ring. Hello? Oh, hi, God. Yes? Uh, I'd love to give my life to you. You bet. Uh, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner in need of some grace. Don't. The ones that are not called are the ones that have, for whatever reason, have not answered yes to Jesus. They're the ones who are still saying no. And so we continue to present the gospel of Christ to them, even though they said no, because we want to have our heart beat with God's heart. And God's heart says he's not willing that anybody should perish. So, you know, we don't know who we know who's called in this room because they've publicly identified themselves and said, hey, I'm a believer. I'm a Christ follower. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want to grow deeper in love with him. I want to know him better so that I can serve him in a way that reflects His glory. Those people who are not called yet, God doesn't say turn your back on them. God doesn't say give up on them. Because just think about it. Did God give up on you? Just think about your journey. Your journey in faith. 
where you went and where you've come from, the things that have happened in your life, how God has pursued you like the hound of heaven. He's been after you at every turn. And he's, he's relentless. And so he still has that desire in his heart. We should have that desire in our heart. And so this whole thing about being called, I'm just going to say to you, the people that are called are the ones that have answered. The people who have not answered, we need to keep pressing in on them in a loving, compassionate, gracious, and caring way. Okay? So let's, let's continue on because there's still more to unpack in verse 15. It says, since, the, um, you know, you get the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, this word transgression, it, it can be a little bit confusing because when you read through the Bible, you're going to see three, three words that are very similar in nature. You have sin, you have iniquity, and you have transgression. Now, they, they are similar in, in the general sense of the meaning of the word in that they are all an offense against God. All of them say we have broken a commandment against God and, and we have violated the holy standard. You see, we have a holy God that has set a holy standard and there isn't a single person on the planet that can meet that holy standard except Jesus. He's the only one that can meet the holy standard. All the rest of us can't get over that bar. It's set too high, it's too holy, and it's too great for us. And so we, we, we sin, and it's either through a sin, and I'm going to explain that, or it's iniquity, or it's transgression. And so what I really want to help us to understand is what it is. And so when we look at sin, it's what we discussed last week in the fact that it, it's those offenses that we commit against God that are unintentional. Let me explain that. So you go down to the grocery store, your wife sends you down to the grocery store, and she gives you a list of things to pick up at the grocery store. And so you're walking through the grocery store, and you're picking out the stuff, and you're buying, and you're doing your good duty of, of purchasing all these things. You happen to walk by kind of the snack aisle, and you see some kind of a snack that you are going like, I've got to have that. But it's not on the list. And so you think to yourself, I'm going to buy that, but I'm going to take the long way home. I'll drive to Riverton to get home so I can eat my snack because it's not on the list and you don't want to be found out. And so when you get home and you bring in the groceries, you forgot that you left the receipt in the bag. And your wife pulls the receipt out of the bag and goes, did you buy something else other than what was on the list? And you're wiping, wiping the crumbs off of your face, and you go, no. Well, it says right here, oh, I, I must have grabbed the wrong receipt. Well, it has everything else except this one thing. You see, what happened there, that is an unintentional sin. You were caught in something that you didn't want to admit to, and what happens is oftentimes it becomes a pride issue. We're trying to save our reputation. We're trying to save face, and so we unintentionally, at the moment, because we're backed into a corner, lie. And that's what sin is, in this very specific sense of the word. When you think of iniquity, iniquity is different than that kind of unintentional sin. Iniquity means that you have a real bent towards 
some kind of particular sin or sins. It's something that we, we, we have to really work hard at steering away from. We're tempted into iniquity. We're, we're tempted with a specific kind of a sin. And either we are going to turn away from that sin, but more often not, than not, because we have a bent towards it, we bend into it, and we continue on in that sin. It would be like if I got up in the morning, and this really didn't happen, so just relax, okay? I'm not confessing sin, remember? Remember the pastor that confessed sin in front of the congregation, dropped dead? I'm not doing that, Lord. But if I got up in the morning, and I said, that lady in the office next to mine is a hot-looking woman, and I think I'm going to try and pursue a relationship with her. Well, Jesus says that at the moment that I started to think in those terms, I've just committed adultery in my mind. I'm guilty of adultery. And then I continue on with that bent. I'm thinking about it, and now I go and pursue her, and if I continue on down that bentness, I'm going to end up actually committing physical adultery with that woman. And what happens more times than not with the iniquity thing is that we continue down that path and we refuse to uh, confess our sin and make things right. And so this, it's this ugliness and bentness towards some hideous kind of sin that God's trying to rescue us from. And that's what iniquity is. But now to the word that we're talking about, transgression. Because now transgression is, it's a thought in my mind of something that I know I'm going to do. I mean, I've premeditated this sin in my mind. It's something I'm going to pursue. It's something that I'm going to do. I will, I'm already knowing in my heart that I'm going to violate God's Word. It's like, let me use children for an example, because there are a few in here. Well, we're all children, aren't we? Yeah. And so what happens with a child is, is that they get reprimanded by mom and dad. And if they are a child who has uh, really been born again through the blood and the water and really is on a righteous path, they will repent and make things right with mom and dad. But a lot of times that doesn't happen because they're just as dirty, rotten little sinners as we are. Okay? And so what really takes place in all of that is now this child says, I'm so mad at my mom and dad that I am not going to do a single thing they say to do. Matter of fact, if they say, clean my room, I'm going to dump stuff all over my room and make it messier. If they say uh, not to do something, I'm just going to do the opposite. And so I am going to try to inflict as much pain as possible on my parents for being jerks. See, there's premeditated sin in being disobedient to mom and dad at that moment in that person's life. Now here's the thing. We all have that tendency of transgressions. The problem is, is that in the Old Testament, there was no way for anybody to deal with the transgressions of their heart. Because remember, what, what the Old Testament covenant did by the shedding of the blood was just deal with the external problems of dress code, of food violations, of drinking the wrong thing, and touching stuff you shouldn't touch. Those were the sins that you confessed, and it left you with a guilty heart. And so, like, when David committed sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, it was a premeditated sin. And, and if you go to Psalm 51 and you read it, he talks about how his sins 
and his transgressions are always before him. You see, he can't get rid of them because what they have in the sacrificial system doesn't deal with the heart issue, with the guilt of the heart. And so when we read this passage and it talks about this whole thing of transgression and sin, what it's really saying is, is that all those transgressions that were committed beforehand under the Old Covenant, those people that committed them, they're now redeemed. In other words, the work that Christ did on the cross is retroactive all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, you just go right down the, through the whole Old Testament and, and those people died in their transgressions. I want you to get that. They died in their transgressions. And what were they waiting for? They were waiting for the day when God would send the Messiah who would deal with their transgressions and His blood would wipe them completely out. And so when it says that their sins are no more, I have removed their sin from them, I will remember it no more, it's retroactive all the way back through the entire Bible, all the way through the history of man. You know, and that's, that's the thing that they're looking at. And, and that's, that's what's being dealt with here. But we could miss that because, well, first of all, we're not Hebrew. We're not Jews. We don't understand the Old Testament as we should. Matter of fact, my Old Testament professor who kind of felt like his students spent more time in the New Testament than the Old Testament said, you will never really truly understand the New Testament until you truly understand the Old Testament. And it's true. So if you're reading and all you do is just read in the New Testament, let me encourage you to back up and pick a book out of the Old Testament and read through it and see what God's got for you there because that's really good. So when, when, when it talks about this whole redemption and redeems those people from their transgressions committed under the first covenant, we kind of go like, oh yeah, I get that. Because when I commit sin, even one that I commit on purpose, I've premeditated, or a, trans, a transgression or iniquity or a sin, I can come and get on my knees and I can confess my sin to God and I can ask Him to forgive me. And at that moment, it's gone. It's done with. Now the sin has already been dealt with. It's the guilt issue that is dealt with right at that moment. And so we look at it and go, yeah, I get that. But you understand, this little Hebrew church that this letter is being written to, they, they, they grew up, I mean, they came up as little gaffers under the old covenant. They were still worshiping and practicing the old covenant because not, not a whole lot of Jews really believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so when... When the author, the, the writer of this, says that to them, you know what their response is? Woohoo! That's Hebrew for yeah, baby. Just in case you didn't know Hebrew. So that's highly important for us to understand. Now we're going to go and deal with verses 16 through 21. Let me read that, okay? Um, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, 
This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood with both the tent and all the vessels in the worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Okay, I want to leave verses 16 and 17, just kind of shelve those for a little bit. We're going to come back to those, okay? But, but I do want, want us to move on and talk about these other things, because what we have to get across our mind and really understand is that the Old, Kevin, old Covenant was initiated with a pronouncement of spilling of blood, and that's the prefigure of Christ's blood initiating the New Covenant. The first covenant was inaugurated like this, because God had given the Ten Commandments and the, the, the first covenant to Moses. But they hadn't actually started practicing it on a regular Sabbath kind of a day where they'd come together and worship. And so before they did, God said to Moses, I want you to gather the entire community of Israel together because we are going to inaugurate this first covenant with blood. And so what they did is they brought in bulls and goats. I want you to get this. Then they took a knife on these animals who had no choice. They, they were brought in, led into the slaughter, as it were. The knife was put to their throat, and, bo- and their throats were cut. Then they drained the blood, the life blood, out of the animal into bowls. Out of a bull, you'd get a, a gallon and a half to two gallons. Out of a goat, it might have been like four quarts or three quarts or something like that. Then they would take that blood, and they would mix that blood with water. This is what Moses was instructed to do, to take the blood and mix it with water. And then he was supposed to take everything that was going to be involved in the old covenant worship, and he was supposed to take the, the wool and the hyssop. The hyssop is a branch, and, and I don't have one, but dip it into the blood and then start to sprinkle everything that is going to be used for the worship in the new temple, in the, in the tabernacle. He would take all of the vessels, all the, the lampstands and the, the golden altar, the incense altar, and the, even the Ark of the Covenant. All those things were laid out. All of Israel is gathered around and they're watching from all angles. It's a solemn, holy moment amongst the entire nation. And, and Moses is up there with his blood because they just saw this bull and this goat give their life, that blood, for this whole episode. And it's being sprinkled and it's being sprinkled and it's being sprinkled. And then, because Moses already read from the book of the covenant, he took that book of covenant and he took the blood of the bull and the goat and the water and he sprinkled it on the book. And he opened up the pages and he sprinkled it all over the pages. Then he took the vestments or the priest's garments and he laid them all out, and he took the blood, and he sprinkled on all of their garments, on everything was sprinkled. And then he called his uh, elders, as it were, together, and they all had bowls, and the whole nation of Israel came walking by, Moses and these other men, and they all had this, and they were sprinkling the blood of these animals on these people. That was just so that... Everything was covered in blood. When they walked out of there, they had blood dripping off of them. All of the 
Everything that was going to be used in the temple was dripping with blood. If you can imagine what that tent looked like with all the tapestry and the gold laid into all the tapestry and the beautiful things that they put together on that, all that stuff had blood splattered all over it. Just blood everywhere. Okay, maybe you're not getting it. Let me try it this way. Imagine this. We have our new building. We've done all the work that needs to be done on it. It is absolutely 100% complete, ready for us to move in. All the decorations are done. The kids' ministry area is all set up. They've got their books and their color crayons, their little flannel graphs, their whiteboards, the TVs, everything set up in there. You go into the nursery and you're mind blown that we're going to take care of little babies in such a great place as this. You walk into the bathrooms and you're like, wow, this is way better than my house. You walk over and you see this, this little place set up and you see an espresso machine sitting there and you're going, we get coffee! Then you walk by and you look in the kitchen and you're just going like, look at the kitchen! And then you step into the, into the worship center and you're looking at all the new chairs that we've got laid out, the new sound system, video projection unit. Everything is just looking awesome. And we're all gathered there for our first Sunday of worship but the elders are standing at the door and they're not letting anybody in. And then all of a sudden, the trailer pulls up and out walks this big old bull. And we bring this bull over because there's a tractor with hooks in it. And we grab that bull by the throat and we slit its throat and the tractor lifts it up and drains all of that blood into a bowl for us. Then we bring some water and we dump it in there and mix it. And then the elders and myself we tell you to wait outside and we walk into that building and we start in the kids' area and we just start sprinkling and splattering blood all over everything in that room. Then we go into the nursery and into the cribs and we let it have it. And then we go into the bathrooms and we smear blood everywhere in there. And then we go by the coffee bar and we just let it go. We're flying it everywhere. And into the kitchen and into my office. And then we come into the sanctuary, into the, the place where we're going to worship God. And we just start, it's like we've got a spray gun and we're just spraying it everywhere. All over everything. And then we walk outside and we tell everybody to line up. And you are going, what? Line up. And then we just start spraying you guys with blood. You're standing there. Your clothes are stained with the blood. It's dripping off of your head. You're looking at each other and you're thinking, holy cow, we just got it. No. And, and here's the thing. All of a sudden, all the moms and all the, and the kids' workers are going like, all right, as soon as he leaves, get in there with bleach and clean everything. You see, but you've missed the point because the law says you don't clean anything. Because what does that blood do? That blood purifies. That's what that blood is for. It's to purify you so that you can stand in front of a holy God and worship Him without getting struck dead. That's why all those instruments of worship are covered with blood. Because they have to be covered, they have to be purified, and the Bible says it's not bleach, it's blood that purifies. You see, and, and we look at that and we're going like, oh, I want you to get a picture in your mind that on the Passover weekend, 
on the Day of Atonement, that in the temple in Jerusalem, that when, when that festivity went on, they had to build some new plumbing up in the temple because the blood that was flowing out of there was uncomprehendable. It was just a steady stream going all the time. And there was death everywhere. Those animals were being slaughtered. Their blood was being let out. It was being sprinkled and it was being poured out for the sins of the nation, for the sins of the people. That blood was being dealt with. But the problem is, one year later, you're back there spilling gallons and gallons, hundreds of thousands of gallons of blood that can do nothing for you. It just covers it up. It doesn't do anything for you. And, and we, we stand here and we go like, man, I just don't get that. I don't understand all of that. Well, the whole thing is, is that it, it has to be purified. In the Old Covenant, blood purified everything. The law requires it. But it all just remained under a covering. It was never eternally dealt with. Our passage tells us that the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now you might be saying to yourself, well, okay, I get that whole thing, but what? what's the almost everything? Hmm. Well, that's a pretty good question. God in His grace and mercy recognizes that within every community, there are going to be those people who are so poor and so destitute, they can't bring a lamb, they can't bring a goat, they can't bring a bull. They can't even afford two turtle doves for the blood sacrifice. So, God makes an allowance for the poorest of the poor to bring a grain offering and offer it. Blood still had to be spilled. But they had to make some kind of offering to God for their sin. So the poorest of the poor, they understood. They stood there and they watched. They saw just the gruesomeness of a sacrifice. They understood that and they got it. But they could not provide that. Their heart was to be able to provide something with blood, but they couldn't financially do it. And so, But God still says there's this requirement for cleansing. In Leviticus it says, for the life of a creature is the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's sin. You see, when there is sin, a life has to be forfeited. Sin demands death, and forgiveness requires blood. That, that's the whole thing. We're purified by the blood. It's all in the blood. Let's move on to verses 23 through 28. It says, Thus it was necessary for the copy of the heavenly things, that's the stuff we worship with here on earth, or they did in the old system, the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, by the heavenly, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices are these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy place every year 
with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once, bears the sin of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting. Necessary copies of things in heavenly places. You see, it talks about heavenly things being purified. That's what Jesus is doing. He's going and purifying heavenly things. But if, if you think like I do, you think, okay, the earth is, because of Adam and Eve, we are infected with sin. So we understand that there is an impurity about this earth and about us. But when you think about heaven, you're thinking everything must be right up there. There's no sin. Everything's good. So what are the things that have to be purified in the heavenly realm? That's a big question. You know what those things are? Those things are us. You and me. Because when we, in, in order for us to worship a holy God, just like the earthly vessels used at the tabernacle as Moses purified them with blood and they had to be purified again, we, in order to worship our holy God, we have got to be purified as well. But the problem is that the old system could never bring that purification to our lives. And so it's telling us here in this passage that it was the blood of Jesus that brought purification to us so that we can stand before a holy God and we can worship Him because we've been purified by the blood of Christ. That's the big, big news for us. The blood of Christ makes us acceptable to God and makes our presence and praise more acceptable than angels. You've got to get this part. Because we have this mindset about angels. It's, it's God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then there's the angels, and then there's us. But there's something that angels will never get. I want you to get this. Because our, our praise and presence is more acceptable than angels because of the blood of Christ. No angel can call God Father. To address God as Abba Father is the believer's privilege. No angel has ever been purchased by the blood of God's Son. Only we have. No angel will ever know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's reserved only for us. And so you've got to get in your mind that we're a little bit more special than an angel. Because you remember, if you go back and you read in, in your Bible, that when Lucifer, who is now called Satan the devil, when he was kicked out of heaven, one-third of all the angels in heaven followed him. There is no redemption for angels. Fallen angels. When the judgment comes, the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, God is going to gather them all, and He is going to cast them into the burning lake of fire. Because are, there is no return for them. They are gone, and they are finished. But for us, we get the blood. The blood is what 
comes over us. And the story of the cross is written on every page of the Bible. The Word of God tells us that through His grace and mercy, the sacrificial blood of Jesus is sprinkled on this book. For us. Nobody else. No animals. No celestial beings. Nobody gets that. And here's one of the great benefits of being purified by the blood of Jesus. We get to sing and preach and teach and learn and share and fellowship together and in harmony because of the blood of Jesus. That's what the church gets out of this. This is just one of the many things. But I want you also to understand this. That the church is not created or developed by Jesus for perfect people. The church is made for sinners who are saved by grace, by the blood of the Lamb. It's been sprinkled on them. They are purified before our Holy Father, and that's what the church is made for. So what we're trying to do in this church is we're trying to create a space for the non-churched and the de-churched, and let me explain those, non-churched people are people who don't go to church, have no connection with church, don't attend church anywhere else, and the D church are those people who went to a church and got the snot beat out of them at that church. And they say, I love God, but I can't stand his bride. We want to create a place where they come and they gather in and they hear the message about Christ in truth and grace, full of truth and grace, because that's what Jesus is. And that through his blood, we get to have this amazing relationship with God. That's what we're trying to create here. We do not want to have a church that is made for church people. You might say, well, we're church people. Well, we love you, so we'll let you stay. I'm a a church guy. I love the church. But I know what, what Christ created it for. And it isn't for us to get in here and be a club where we slap each other on the back and go, Brother, did you obey the Ten Commandments this week? Because I checked all mine off. I didn't do anything wrong. That's hogwash. God wants us to be reaching into the community, into the lives of the people. Now, before we move, before we go on with the last two and a half verses, I want to go back and hit up 16 and 17. Remember? I talked, set that on the shelf, pull it off the shelf now, because we're going to deal with that. Let me go back and read it. For there is a will, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Okay, this is legal kind of talk here. Because in the Greek language, the word covenant... And the word will and testament, they are all exactly the same word. There isn't a little bit of a variation in it. It is exactly the same word. So you're asking yourself, okay, so, praise Jesus, I'm not a Greek scholar. I just read the guys that are. And they tell me what, how this works. It depends on the sentence, sentence structure to determine which one of those words fits into this passage. And this sentence structure makes this only plausible to be will and testament. That's what it means. The final will and testament of somebody. And, and you know that 
when a will is made by somebody, that will is only on paper at that point. If you were to be put into some rich geezer's will, where you're going to get a ton of money and some really nice homes, and you're just, I mean, you're just going like, praise Jesus, I'm in the will. But, you know, ten years goes by, and the, the old guy hasn't kicked off yet. Fifteen years, twenty years, as long as he is alive, all that will is is a piece of paper. It doesn't do anything. It promises you something. It promises you something when the old guy dies. So it's kind of like, well, I love you, Jesus, and I love him, but can you take him? After a little bit, you know, you're kind of going like, I, I, I like hanging out with him. I like being with him. He's a really good guy. But is he ever going to die? I mean, there's some stuff that I want. I'm going to be old. Until the old guy kicks off, that will doesn't do anything. Now, I want you to remember back to Jesus' teaching about the, the prodigal son. Because the prodigal son comes to his father and he says, I would like my portion of the inheritance. In other words, I snuck into your bedroom, I know the combination to your safe, I opened it up and I read the will, and I'm getting one-third of everything that you own because the older brother gets two-thirds. And so he goes and he says, you're living a lot longer than I expected, and so can I have my portion before you die? Now, according to the custom of the time, the father had every right to say, no, that piece of paper is just a piece of paper and you only get what you have coming to you after I'm dead. But the father said, you know what? I will give you your one-third, even though he knew in his mind what the end result was going to be. Now, here's the shocking thing when Jesus gave this illustration, this, this story. No child would ever say to the father in that time, I want my inheritance ahead of time. That was shocking. Because what the boy was saying is, I wish you were dead. And so that was really shocking. And, and all the listeners, as Jesus is telling the story, they're thinking, yeah, they're going to take this kid out, and they're going to tie him up to a post, and they're going to grab a big old stick, and they're going to beat that boy within an inch of his life, and, and it's going to teach him a lesson. But what was more shocking to them was the fact that the father consented and gave that portion to the boy. You see, the inheritance was enacted upon before there was death. And that was totally shocking to everybody. Now let's get back to our passage, because, because the will that was made was made by Jesus. Our will that we're talking about, because we are told that we have this inheritance from Jesus. And Jesus is the one that wrote the will. But here's the problem with the writing of the will. The, the will is, is written by one person, and that person appoints somebody else to be the executor of the will. In other words, when I die, you need to go and take these documents, because as soon as I die, these pieces of paper become legal and binding documents, and I want you to make sure that my wishes in my will are, are taken care of. But here's the really crazy thing. is not only... Not only is Jesus the author, the writer of the will, he's the executor of the will as well. 
So what happens is, is that he, he dies on the cross. And by the way, the Old Testament was everything in the New Testament. When you read your New Testament, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of that is Old Testament. They still worked and worshipped under the old system. It's when Jesus said, it is finished, and the, that big thick curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That is when the new, new covenant was enacted, when it came out. Because what that signified is God's no longer in the house. He's left the building. And He's going to dwell in the hearts of men and women. That's the new covenant. That's part of our inheritance. And so what we have now is we have this whole thing where Jesus dies, He's buried, He's resurrected, He spends about 50 days on planet Earth uh, mingling around with people, and then He ascends into heaven to be the executor of the will in the, in the throne room of God. That's what the mediator is now. He's the executor, mediator of His will of our inheritance in heaven. But in order to do that, when Jesus walks in there, he knows something that has to happen because what the, what the uh, writer of Hebrews tells us is that Jesus went into the heavenly holy of holies, into the holiest place. That's the throne room of God. But he knows, just like in the old covenant, that when he go into the holy of holies, there has to be some blood spilt and sprinkled in order to cover sin. And so what Jesus does, he does what nobody else could ever do. And he does it perfectly. He goes in there with his blood and he sprinkles it all over the throne room of heaven. Because when he did that, all of a sudden, all of our sin was disappearing. It was gone. Oh man. I mean, we just go like, we just have a hard time getting our head around this. But I want you to know that the moment that you said yes to Jesus that every sin that you committed from when you were a little kid to the time that you die is under the blood and it will never be recalled and held against you ever again. doesn't matter what it is. I don't care if you've had an abortion. I don't care if, if you've embezzled millions of dollars. It doesn't matter whether you're a murderer, a rapist, or a pedophile. You think of the most hideous sins that anybody could commit. When that blood is sprinkled on you, you are absolutely 100% purified. And in chapter 8, verse 12, it reassures us that I will remember your sin no more. Somebody should be dancing right now. We need some more Pentecostals in this church. <laughs> you know, let's get her. But, but here's the thing, is, is that Jesus finished his work of sacrifice. He made that sacrifice once only. Totally different than in the Old Covenant, where they had to do it again and again and again and again. There are, there are some religions that keep pinning Jesus back on the cross, making him sacrifice and, and give his blood over and over and over and over because they don't understand Hebrews chapter 9. It's a once and for all kind of a thing. It's done. And now all he does is he sits at the right hand of the Father. He's the executor of his own will, our inheritance. He mediates between us and God. He stands in the gap between a holy God and sinful man. And he says, these are your children. 
they have the, my blood covering them. And he sees us as righteous and holy. And that's the most awesome thing we could ever have. It is awesome. Now, I, I need to deal with one thing real quick here. Because if I don't deal with it, I'm going to have 100 questions out there. So let me deal with it. Because it says here in verse 27, um, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes the judgment. Each and every person in this room has an appointment with death. You cannot escape it. You cannot get around it. The only thing that will keep that from happening is if the Lord Jesus Christ comes back before you die. That would be really cool. But I don't know when he's coming back, so I can with certainty say that we are going to die. And it says here that after we die, we go to judgment. Well, you know, there's been a thing that's gone on for years where... And I'd like to find out who the group of people or the person was that started this nonsense because I'd like to take them out behind the building and just slap them a couple of times. Because they started this thing that says, when you stand before God on Judgment Day, there's going to be a big old jumbotron up there. And before all the saints of God, all of your sins are going to be played so everybody gets to see them. And you go like this. It almost makes you feel like going like, like, is there a place between heaven and hell I can go where they don't get to have the theater seats to see my life? It kind of makes you feel that way because that doesn't feel like God's grace and mercy to me if my sins are going to be played out for everybody to see, especially for my wife to see. Yikes. Right? Let me, chapter 8, verse 12 again. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The promise that God makes for us and to us here on this earth is still enacted in heaven. Your sins are not going to be brought up for anybody to see. They're not even going to be brought up for you to, be, for you to remember. God will not use those. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that for those who are in Christ Jesus, therefore now there is no condemnation. And so your sins are not going to be brought before you. They're not going to be played before you. There's nothing that's going to happen before you. And so really what that word should be used there, rather than for um, sin or, or for judgment, let me see if I can find out where I wrote that, because I remember writing that down somewhere in here. Um, okay, I can't remember. But the idea is, is that it, it, instead of understanding judgment as punishment, it's both reward and punishment. We, the saints, when we stand in judgment with Jesus, He's going to take all the things, all the good things that we did for Him, and it's going to be put to the fire, to the test. It's either going to be wood, hay, and stubble, and, and you really won't have anything to offer Jesus, or it is going to be gold and jewels and precious gems, and you will offer that to Jesus. So in other words, some people are just going to be, and you get in by the skin of your teeth. That's true. You just barely get in, but you're in. Others are going to be handy. That's why it's really important for us to start to think, not because we want to appease God, not because we're trying to earn something with God, but because we're saying like, hey, I want to create some stuff in heaven that I get to give to Jesus. That's why it's important to be involved in what God's called us to be involved in. 
So I want you just to, to relax about the whole judgment thing. If you are in faith with Christ, if you have committed your life to Jesus, you don't have to worry about your sin ever coming up and haunting you again. It's finished. It's dealt with. You got that? You with me? Do I need to wake you up? Okay. Well, okay, here's what we need to know. The old covenant sailed on a sea of blood. From the time it was enacted till, till uh, Jesus died on the cross, there was a sea of blood that the old covenant sailed on. It was, it was unbelievable for, for two vast reasons. First, to emphasize the seriousness of sin. The Bible takes sin seriously, more, than, more so than any other religion. Sin alienates us from God. Sin is rooted in the hearts of humanity. Sin cannot be vindicated by any self-help program, by any confession other than to Christ, and there's nothing that will take your guilt or your sin away except for the blood of Jesus. That's what we need to know. The, the second reason is that it's costly. Forgiveness is costly. It costs Jesus his life, his life blood to be sprinkled. If you're going to forgive somebody, and at some point you will have to forgive somebody, it will require you something. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you your pound of flesh. It's going to cost you anger, bitterness, resentment. It's going to cost you uh, vengeance to get even. Or it might even cost you monetarily. You're going to have to absorb the cost on some level. Because if, you're not, if, it, if your forgiveness doesn't cost you something, then that's not forgiveness. It's something else, but it's not forgiveness. It always costs something. We need to know that. And so here what we have is that Jesus has left us with this great inheritance of salvation, of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. But He is also in heaven at the right hand of the Father, mediating our inheritance for us. Between God and, and us, Jesus sits there and He does the thing for us. We don't have to do anything. He stands in the gap between sinful man and a holy and righteous God interceding on our behalf. So here's what we have to do. We must embrace the benefits all the, and enjoy all of our inheritance that's given to us here and now. Because it is there and then, but it is also here and now. And so what is it that we have here and now? Our inheritance consists of these things. Forgiveness of our sin. A clear conscience. Peace so we can sleep at night. Well-being, wholeness. We have a new purpose. We have a new identity. And ultimately, we have, in heaven, eternal life. And all this is, is impossible apart from Christ's death. And it is all activated by His death. So, are you purified by the blood of Christ? If you are today, make a declaration of that. As, as I've said, we're going to sing three more songs to help you contemplate, to help you think about God. So at that moment, when we're singing, your heart should be connecting with God. You should be saying these things. I want to grow in you more. I want to know you in a different way. I know that it's your blood that has done this for me, and I want to stand, and I want to unite my heart with you. You make that declaration to God. And I just want to finish off and leave you with this verse before we go and sing. And the worship team can make their way up there if they'd like to do that at this moment. Romans 8. 33 and 34. <clears throat> Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies, who is condemning. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. That's Jesus. He purifies, he rescues, he redeems, he heals. Our Father, we are so thankful that today we didn't have to spill a ton of blood in order to be purified, to stand before you, to worship you, to adore you, to listen to your word, to enjoy fellowship with each other, to be in community. We are so thankful that that blood was shed once and for all through Jesus Christ. And as we go now to continue in our worship of singing, may our hearts be knit to these words. May they really be the words of our heart as we sing them, that we would lift them to you in, in, in just praise and adoration, that we would glorify you, that we would recognize who we are in light of the holy God, and that we have been justified by the blood of Christ, and we stand in your sight as holy and righteous. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Help us to live our lives in, in retrospect and in light of all that you've done for us, that we would reflect you well throughout our days. So we commit the rest of this time to you, in Jesus' great name. Amen. Thank you.